Hey everybody, welcome to the 1947 Rise podcast. A podcast that helps India-born US trained Indians get integrated into the Indian technology ecosystem and inspires them to move back to India to build massive tech companies and or help enable the tech ecosystem. We do this by interviewing India-born US trained Indians who have moved back to India and built massive tech companies themselves and or helped enable the tech ecosystem. All right, uh, I'm super pumped for this episode because this is a special episode with a very special co-host and a special guest, Bradley Tusk and Akshay Bidi. Welcome to the show. Hey, Shiva, thanks for having us. Thank you. So I'll go ahead and set the context. Uh, I'll talk about how, like what exactly we're going to talk about on this uh, podcast. And then uh, from there on, you guys can take it over. So Steve Case wrote a book called Third Wave. Uh, it really shaped my worldview personally. And he talks about, you know, the evolution of the internet and, uh, and what's next. Where are we heading to? So the three waves of the internet, building the internet, second app economy and mobile economy, Third is Internet of Everything. So the first one, building the internet from 1985 to 1999, laying the foundation for the online world. It was primarily driven by people, product, platform, partnerships, policy, government relations. And the key device was PCs and core risk was technology. Second wave, app economy and mobile economy from 2000 to 2019. Search, social, e-commerce, Startups grew up, uh, they grew up on uh, top of the internet, driven by people, product, platform. Key device was smartphones and core risk was really distribution. Whoever got the distribution would, play the, would, would, would win the game. And the third wave, which we're going to talk about today, internet of everything, frontier technologies from 2019 to moving forward the next few decades. You know, internet will be available everywhere. It allows entrepreneurs to transfer major real world sectors. It will be driven by people, product, platform, partnerships, policies, and government relations. Key devices would be sensors. And core risk is going to be policy plus government plus partnerships. And moving forward, partnerships with the policy makers and the government is a necessity. And, uh, and that's where we have uh, Bradley Tusk, one of the best in the game. And we have uh, Akshay BD, uh, who's been doing a great job uh, you know, on our side of the world, which is Asia and India. Uh, let's get it, guys. All right. Um, awesome. Bradley, look, I'm really looking forward to this because we, you and I have never spoken, but our worlds have kind of been uh, somewhat uh, overlapping. Yeah, uh, you and in, I could probably in, spend this entire time just gossiping about yeah. people and projects and all of that. Exactly. And I'm really excited because we have never spoken. And so this is actually a pretty authentic conversation for me because I want to ask you all these questions myself. Yeah. Uh, and so, okay, the, I just want to open with, tell me, so this is something is like all the, you know, uh, folks I worked with in the past, we start with, which is uh, just to get a sense of when you got involved with Uber. Because yeah. that was uh, kind of an inflection point for you. Yeah. So look, my, Uber was really my first foray into tech. And before Uber, I really had no background in tech at all, nor do I think really anyone at that point had focused on the intersection between tech and regulation. And, and you know, it happened now that I've got a venture capital fund that deals with this and books and all this stuff. It feels very organized. 
but it was very organic and random uh, when it first started. I, it was early 2011. So in 2009, I ran my Bloomberg's campaign for mayor. We won. In 2010, I started a political consulting firm with, you know, one employee, no clients, just figured, hey, I'll take a shot at this thing and see if I can do it. And then in early 2011, uh, and the business sort of took off pretty quickly, but it was all, you know, normal types of clients, the Walmarts of the world, not, not tech startups. Uh, a friend of mine called me and said, hey, there's this guy with a small transportation startup. He's having some regulatory problems. Can you do me a favor and talk to him? Okay. So uh, later that afternoon, I know the, friend? the friend's got him, Kevin Sheeky. Um, he is uh, Mike Bloomberg's kind of top advisor and has been for the last 30 years. Um, Kevin brought me in to run Bloomberg's uh, campaign. He brought me into City Hall. Um, Kevin has, has brought me many of the, the great opportunities that I've had in my career. Um, and I don't think Kevin particularly knew what Uber was. He was just asked by someone else and said, hey, Bradley can probably be the right person to help here. Um, but I talked to Travis that day, thought what he was doing sounded interesting. Won't say that I fully appreciated the potential of Uber on that call, um, but figured, okay, you know, I'm building a business. Uh, sure, I'd be happy to have this client. And then he called back and said, hey, I can't afford the fee. Would you take equity? I didn't even know what equity meant at the time. Uh, but I was like, yeah, sure. What the fuck? I'll take it. Um, so, uh, that was the beginning of it and, and where Uber was is Uber had already launched in San Francisco, was already fighting, uh, with the California public utility commission, um, but had just come to New York, you know, barely had any cars on the road and the New York taxi and limousine commission issued a cease and desist order saying you have to stop. And our argument was, we're not a taxi company. You don't have jurisdiction over us. Um, and, uh, luckily, I don't know if you ever worked with Ashwini Chabra, uh, when he was I did, yeah. Uber, but Ashwini at the time was the deputy taxi commissioner for New York city. And he was one of the few people who could actually understand what a TNC was and understand the distinction between a platform slash marketplace and uh, a taxi company. Um, look, the reason why is we got very lucky, Mike Bloomberg as mayor did something that almost no politician can ever do, which is he just came into office when he won in 2001 and said, I am going to hire the most talented people I can find. And I don't care all about politics. Right. And by doing that um, and then making all those people that hire the most talented people they could find and by creating a culture where you could innovate and you were supported for doing so and you really believed in, in what we were doing, Thousands of incredibly talented people like Ashwini, who normally wouldn't have worked in city government, were drawn to it because of Mike. And as a result, someone of his talent was was there at the TLC. And it was a long process. And, you know, it wasn't like they just on the first meeting said, OK, do what you want. It was it was a lot of work. But um, we were able to show them that there is a distinction between these two things. They were able to accept that. Um, and that's how well we that sounds that's that sounds like some retrospective storytelling hang on hang on so right. surely surely there was a lot of uh internal conversation between how much do we want to yield to the regulators versus how much do we want to push back and it as you i mean presumably you got on the phone at 3 a.m with a certain travis kalanick who wanted yeah. to basically uh <laughs> you know rewrite every uh taxi uh you know regulatory code in the city overnight and you were like trying to manage expectations 
and uh, then that happened. That that's fair because you are fair, Kelly. <laughs> well, you've been through this this movie a few times, so you know. Um, yeah, but he, here's where Akshay was different, and let's call it March of 2011 or whatever month it was, compared to later on. It was existential, right? So hmm. it, it, there wasn't really everyone now. I think everyone now has stopped talking about Uber's public policy efforts. But when it was sort of the thing that everyone loved talking about in this space, the thing that most people misunderstood is in the very early days, it wasn't like we had a choice to be really aggressive or more cooperative. If we weren't really aggressive, Uber just wouldn't exist right now, right? It was it was existential. It was a fight for survival. And that was it. So later on, there were fights where maybe we were too aggressive um, there were things that the public policy team did after I was no longer there that clearly were, were bad ideas. Um, but but back then, you just had to fight as hard as you possibly could because if if you didn't, you know, none of, no one uh, listening to this podcast would have ever even heard of you. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, um, okay, so uh, what was I mean? So so I, I'm I'm really intrigued by the fact that you accepted equity because uh you're you know you're on the east coast um the west coast tech scene was just taking off equity was kind of a new instrument even there so i understand the people who like uh who took equity in the early days in the west coast but on the east coast the fact that you underwrote this risk is um is pretty not characteristic of our industry bradley because we're not really you know people from policy and communications we come from different backgrounds, whether it's law or academia or things like this, and we're not really risk takers. So what, what kind of push yeah. you to uh, do that? It, it's a good question. If I, you could argue, I thought, I mean, in the sense that everyone thinks about themselves obsessively, I've, I've thought about this, um, that really for the first 15 years of my career, I, I was in the wrong place, right? So um, I was in politics, but the thing that I always enjoyed, whether it was uh, when I was deputy governor of Illinois or working for Mike or in the U.S. Senate or even at the New York City Parks Department was coming up with new policy ideas and launching them. And, and I was happy when they were controversial because that meant they were interesting and, and potentially impactful. And in a way, I, I spent the 15 or so years that I had in, in government and politics being as entrepreneurial as I possibly could. That's when I was, I think, both at my most effective and, and happiest. And maybe what it really meant was, look, what you should be doing is, is building businesses in the private sector, not, not directing government policy in the public sector. So I, I think where I am now, and now we can talk about it, but I've started lots of companies and, and you know everything else, um, maybe sort of more of my natural state. So I think I have a pretty high risk tolerance. Um, and then also keep in mind, I had at that point, even though it was only a year old, a business with good enough cash flow that I was able to sort of underwrite the risk of taking equity that if it went to zero, um, it wouldn't really impact our bottom line. I, I had no idea what it was going to turn into, so it's not like I saw it. But like normally speaking, sometimes people in politics, people I don't even know, will email me and say, hey, I followed your lead and I'm a political consultant and I just took equity in this startup and I'm going to make all this money too. And I have to sort of try to politely explain, like, I just hit the needle on the haystack, dude. Like, <laughs> I worked hard. Yeah. Yes. Do you want to oh, talk about what that, uh, do you want to quantify what that looked like? Just I mean, those who may you know, know, Uber was was a Series A and it was a $50 million company, whatever it was when I got in. And today it's a $70 billion company. Uh, I, I, I sold a couple of years ago, so I got out a little before that, but not much. Uh, it was when they already went public. So, 
Um, yeah, I, I think I, I think I made 250 times my money uh, on on the deal. Uh, but but in reality, just because this is an important point for the listeners, ultimately, if you're going to invest in startups, you, you gotta have a portfolio, right? Um, and that's true whether you're deploying capital like we do out of our venture capital fund or whether you're working with startups and taking equity in return for your work. But you know, just betting on one is, is a lottery ticket, might happen to cash in and win. Um, but, but ultimately, if you're gonna play that game, um, y- you've gotta build a portfolio. Bradley, I'll sneak in. Uh, so the backstory, how we got connected, you know, when I read your book, The Fixer, and I recommend everyone should read it, I emailed you and you were kind enough to respond to it. And then that was t- 2018, I think we stayed in touch and then uh, I emailed you back this year and we jumped on a call about five months back and it just happened to be that Coinbase was going public. Yeah. Uh, can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, was sure. It I mean, like and, yeah. I, it's funny because Coinbase actually is the one example of something in my portfolio um, that is not a typical kind of touch venture partners investment in the sense of usually we get an allocation and a deal or, or now that we're sort of leading leading rounds, even even the lead allocation and a deal, because a company says, I have these very specific regulatory challenges or opportunities, and I need this specific team to help me overcome them. So we invested in FanDuel, then we ran all these campaigns to legalize daily fantasy sports betting. We invested in Bird, ran all these campaigns to legalize electric scooters, invested in Lemonade, got them their insurance licenses everywhere, invested in Roman, legalized prescription via tax in different jurisdictions, and, and so on. Um, Coinbase was interesting because it was another, the, the fund that was leading their Series D, I think it was, which is very late stage for us, we normally only invest in seed in Series A, um, came to us and said, we like the optics of your name on the cap table because it makes it look like we're taking regulation seriously. Do you want allocation? And we're like, sure. Uh, <laughs> we took it and we never did any work for Coinbase. I don't know them. Uh, I've met them once or twice, but they, they don't call me for advice or for help or anything else. But with that said, we, we did incredibly well on the deal. So I'm, I'm happy it happened. I love it. Uh, and I think you have started, uh, you, you know, you've started this new uh, model for venture capital where, you know, with, with interest rates so low and there's so much money available, uh, it's hard for funds to differentiate themselves today. And so yeah. you're, you're starting to see solo capitalists, uh, you know, like Shiva eat away at the deal flow in the early yeah. stages, especially if they're niche. At later stages, funds like yours, a little bit like, you know, in Seed, in Series A, you're yeah. able to get full allocation. Um, so is this something like... I, I, and everybody that I know in tech is is kind of doing some form of angel investing, either through you know sweat equity um, and advising or investing their money directly. Um, do you think that policy and comms is changing uh, the game where it's blurring the borders between the investors and the company in a way that the investors are becoming more um, operational within the company? No, I, I would say this. So to, to the first point that you made, there are so, there's so much money in venture capital right now. If you are, I, I don't understand how anyone who's a generalist could even try to be a VC. I, I think you have to be truly differentiated. It doesn't mean you have to do what I do, right? You, you could have incredible, you know, you could have skills around marketing. You could have skills around engineering. I mean, there's there's lots of different places people could add value beyond policy and communications like we do. Um, but 
you know, there are already a couple of dozen generalist firms that are very successful and, you know, they get allocations. We get allocations because we solve a very specific problem that people need help with. Um, so we win deals. But if you are just a generalist at this point, like I, I think it'd be very hard um, to, to successfully deploy capital. Um, and then in terms of the, the, the second part of, bl of blurring the lines, you know, kind of gets to your point that you opened with Shiva about the third wave and the, the Steve Case point, which is everything, every company today is a technology company, right? So like I'm holding up, you guys, you can see this, the audience can't, a, a, a book just as a random example, right? Whoever made that book, even though it's a paper book, is a technology company. They use technology to print the book, to market the book, to ship the book. So every company is a tech company these days, whether they're a startup or, or a public company at this point or just a privately held company. And the vast majority of businesses, especially anything that touches a consumer, is regulated by government in one way or another, right? Which means 80, 90% of companies, either directly or indirectly, have to deal with politics, have to deal with government. So I, I think actually really answer your question is, if you are uh, an entrepreneur and you're trying to build a, a new model, a, a new company, new whatever, um, you better have someone on your team that understands the politics and communications and all that. Because if you don't, it doesn't matter how great your tech is or how great your marketing is or how prestigious your investors are. If, if you can't navigate that, you're going to lose. Yeah, this takes me actually to uh, something I want to ask you about, um, an article Peter Thiel wrote in 2009, where he said, you know, we're in a deadly race between politics and technology, and um, the future will be much better or worse, but the question of the future remains very open. Uh, and it may, this race may come down to the wire, to quote his words. Uh, do you agree with that? And like, how do you think about this? Yes, um, no. yes or no. So Peter's really smart. And even though his politics are different than mine, I'm actually a very big fan of his. Um, but but I would say where he's and then by the way, and he he wrote that he said 2009. So I would argue Peter is politically more sophisticated 12 years later um, than than he was back then. Um, it is it, it? They're not these two binary worlds, each moving in lockstep with each other. It's not like the U.S. Army and the Chinese Army are each advancing towards the border. Um, and, and it's, it's you know, politics effectively is populated, in my view, in terms of elected officials, with people who desperately, desperately need the affirmation and validation that comes with holding office. That is the one thing that they all have in common, whether it's it's AOC or Ted Cruz or whatever else. They all desperately need to feel like they're somebody they desperately need to feel important and all of the decisions they make at the end of the day are based on keeping their ability to stay in office and maintain that level of affirmation and validation and so i believe that if you can convince a politician that if either if they do what you want they will win their next election or that if they don't do what you want they will lose their next election um, then you can generally get to the right result that you want to get to. I think that cuts across geography. I think it cuts across ideology. I think it cuts across party. And so it's not that tech is in this binary competition with politics. It's that tech has to better understand politics and say, okay, here's how it works. Let's use it to our advantage to shape the laws properly. 
Um, and a lot of times the problem you have in the Valley, and look, this, this cognitive dissonance in some ways created a big opportunity for me, so I, I guess I've benefited from it, but is you have these founders who say, I went to Stanford, I was in Y Combinator, John Doerr's on my board, or pick whoever, uh, you know, and therefore, when those stupid regulators see how smart I am, they're going to do whatever I want. And just not, they don't know what they don't know. And that's when politics and technology get into the kind of race that Peter is talking about. But if you don't treat it that way, and you treat it as, okay, here's another sort of world that I have to navigate and solve. Um, it doesn't mean you'll win every fight. I don't, I don't want every fight. Um, but it generally means you can figure out how to achieve the underlying goal. Okay, that's interesting. Um, which, which kind of brings us to what kind of founders succeed in businesses where there is a anywhere between a regulatory arbitrage to something yeah. that's true and disruptive, right? Because I think a lot of the stuff that Silicon Valley describes as disruptive is some version of a regulatory arbitrage. Would you kind of agree with that characterization? And if so, what founders are most suitable to run companies like that? You know, I actually ask myself and look at this every day because, you know, a good chunk of my day every day is spent looking at at startups and, and talk. And because we're early stage investors, in, in many ways, we're really betting on the founders as much as anything else. Um, I, I need someone who knows what they don't know, right? If 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 the founder, if the startup founder believes themselves to be a political genius, um, I usually don't want to invest for two reasons. One, um, it means they're they're in the wrong lane and they're not sufficiently focused on engineering and marketing and product and and the things that that I don't do and need them to be successful at. Number one, um, and number two, they're going to get in our way, right? So, it, like Travis, for for all the shit that he takes publicly. He understood at the end of the day that he wasn't a political guy, he wasn't a policy guy. And while we certainly had plenty of back and forths on what the right moves were, and my guess is that after I left, he was probably more dominating than he was with me. Um, still, he knew what he didn't know. And, and, and as a result, we were able to win. And by the way, I, I still work with, with Travis uh, on Cloud Kitchens right now, and um, it's, it's still a really, really good partnership. I talked to him yesterday. Um, but but I need a founder that appreciates, okay, I've got this really good idea that could take advantage of, a, of an opportunity or a hole in the market. Or I've got this new technology that I think can create a new market, right? It doesn't even have to be a hole in existing market. I know that I'm going to deal with regulation and, and politics and government at some point, And I want to put myself in the best position to navigate that. When a founder can clearly articulate that to me, then I'm like, okay, this person has the right mentality. Then we've got to look at, do we like the idea? Is the TAM big enough? Do we believe in the team? You know, the million left. I think Jordan, my partner, though, they showed me a stat that we invest in 1.4% of companies that we look at. Um, and that's not even 1.4% companies that, that approach us, right? These are the ones where we decide to actually then take a meeting and look at the deck and everything else. So, you know, the vast, vast majority of the time, you know, we're saying no to most deals. Um, but I'm specifically looking for that on top of everything else, because if we do invest, I need to feel confident that my team could then get in there and do their work, right? And, and if they're not allowed or able to do it, then I can't impact the outcome of the startup itself. And if I can't have an impact, I don't want to deploy capital. 
Yeah, makes sense. And one of the things that I I think about a lot is what is the right time for a policy intervention? Sometimes, you know, pre-product or just after launch, it's probably a good idea to fly under the radar for a while before it springs up. Do you have a view on this? I I do. I do. Like when should they call Bradley Tusk? Well, so the the first thing I I guess my publisher would want me to say is I wrote a whole book about this called The Fixer. So you you (laughs) could buy the book. And and I will say the answer, unfortunately is different for every single situation. So I think there are times where flying under the radar makes a lot of sense. There are times where you do have to ask for permission because like take Lemonade as an example, a- amazing company. But if if we sold insurance policies without a license, we'd go to jail, right? Whereas the risk with Uber was like they would impound the car. It's not that big a deal. The risk with Bird is they would impound the scooter. Not really that big a deal. Uh, if you're paying a fine or something like that, you could say, okay, um, I'm going to take that, that risk. If it's look, you're looking at like, okay, I'm, I may face seven to 10 years in a medium security jail. If I do this thing without permission, um, then you probably shouldn't take the risk. So one is, I think you've got to understand, uh, the consequences of acting kind of without coordinating with government on the front end. It may be perfectly legal to do that. It may be a gray area, but if it's clearly illegal, then then you got to try a different approach. So that's that's number one. Um, Number two, it depends on what your product is. And and stop me guys when I get sort of too granular here, because I could probably talk about this for the next 10 hours. But, um, and I I teach this stuff at Columbia Business School. So my students probably are are sick of hearing me talk about this. But if you are, let's use Uber as an example. Travis didn't invent the idea of having people pay to get from point A to point B. I'm pretty sure that's literally existed since the wheel was created, right? But, or maybe even before that, what Travis did was he came up with a very clever tweak on how to do it, where eventually, as we started taking more and more market share away from the taxi industry, they kept ramping up their regulatory pressure. That's what led to all the cease and desist orders, which then led to the fights that we had all over the country. So when you are tweaking an existing business model and taking market share away from the incumbents, you have to be ready for them to come at you. It doesn't mean you have to necessarily proactively reach out to the regulators on the front end, but you got to assume that if you succeed, you're going to effectively have what's a regulatory and political fight over market share, right? And you've got to be ready for that fight. So there are times where we invest in a company and we say, you know what, they're going to need us. We actually don't want to be involved right now because the best thing they can do right now is like you said fly under the radar but let's put the plan together so we're ready then there's a whole separate world of white space so crypto ai machine learning drones esports like you know there's dozens where you're not tweaking something you're creating something brand new out of whole cloth where there is no regulatory framework and in that case your goal is not to like evade scrutiny for as long as possible. Your goal is to figure out what's the regulatory framework and structure that we need to be able to exist um, successfully. It's like we talked about Coinbase earlier. Coinbase is a, is a legitimate company. If there is no crypto regulation at all and you can't distinguish between a fraudulent ICO and a legitimate ICO, it's very hard for anyone, even Coinbase, to, to ultimately exist in that ecosystem because you can't tell good from bad, right? So Coinbase doesn't want too much regulation, but they need some sort of regulatory framework. Um, and that's true. You know, actually, we were talking about, you know, uh, VTOL and, and flying cars and all of that. I think there's a huge future there 
but it's never, no pun intended, going to get off the ground until the FAA works on it and starts issuing some regs around it. Um, same thing on autonomous cars and trucks, right? Different states in the U.S. have adopted laws. We have an investment in an autonomous trucking company called Kodiak that operates within state lines in places like Texas and Florida and California. But the U.S. Department of Transportation has done nothing on this issue over the last at least five years. Uh, there was a bill at one point that was in Congress that had some support and then just died. Uh, the Trump uh, DOT did nothing on this at all. And as a result, the industry is pretty hamstrung, right? I am hopeful that Pete Buttigieg, who's the Secretary of Transportation now, because he's young and pro-technology, will choose to be proactive and do something on this. Um, but the point is, if you're in a white space, you're actually thinking about what should the regulatory framework be and how can I help create and shape that, um, A, so that it works for me, and B, so that, that there is one in the first place. So it, it, it really varies based on... Um, the startup you're in, the industry, whether or not it's already regulated, who the opponents are, how politically powerful they are, how much risk you're willing to take personally. And then you've got to basically combine all of those different factors and say, okay, let's do A or let's do B. And that's oftentimes where we come in is that, you know, we can just maybe a little more intelligent than most, understand all the factors, identify them, weigh them, and kind of come to a conclusion. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm noticing a trend in the US where Twitter is becoming more and more a real time, uh, you know, reflection of somebody's popularity or their chances of getting elected into office are directly being reflected on a daily feedback loop on Twitter. And so you have this new uh, wave of politicians like AOC, uh, Mayor Suarez of Miami, uh, all of them just, you know, uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg as well, uh, all of them kind of like rising uh, to the top, using Twitter as a medium. Do you think that companies should be responding to that in some way and get on? No, to, or get it, on it, to. It's, just, it's funny. I, I wrote my column on this yesterday. So your, your timing is actually really, really good. And I was talking specifically about um, Gavin Newsom's uh, the recall election, in California. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll take a second to explain it in case the listeners aren't familiar. Um, in California, there is a legal mechanism that. If the governor is not performing well, um, the voters can put a recalling the governor on the ballot. Um, you have to get a certain amount of signatures to put it on the ballot. And then if it gets a certain amount of support, I think the majority uh, of voters to recall, the next question then becomes, okay, well, who do you want instead? This is how Arnold Schwarzenegger became governor of California. Got in Gray Davis was governor, ran into a bunch of problems. He got recalled and Schwarzenegger uh, w was chosen to replace him. So, um, Gavin Newsom, who's the governor of California today, uh, has had kind of a rocky last year or so. And look, COVID has been hard for everybody. So I, I think expecting perfection at this time is is unrealistic. But um, but where I think Newsom may have erred is I think he and his team actually confused Twitter and punditry and cable TV and the inside game of politics for real voters in real life. So it's very easy to live inside the political bubble and just be obsessed with what's happening on social media, obsessed with what people are saying on MSNBC, obsessed with what every union and, and advocacy group says that they want and need. Um, but ultimately, all that really matters is you know who your voters are, who are going to show up in your election, um, and what they need. And sometimes the, there's a misalignment between uh, what looks right on Twitter 
and what's actually right in, in reality. So what looks right on Twitter tends to be the most ideological, the most pure, the most bombastic. You, know, you mentioned AOC as an example. She or Mayor on, Suarez on our side of the world. Well, but I want to distinguish them because they're, they're they're different, right? And I think it's partly the difference between an executive and a um, and, a, and a legislator. But for AOC, someone's very easy for her because she doesn't really expect to accomplish anything. Nor does anyone else expect her to really accomplish anything. All she has to do is just be self-righteous and be online and criticize other people and take a hard line and position on everything and and be the arbiter of who's pure and who's not. Um, that's a very easy way to live. Um, but And if you are a legislator and you have very low turnout primaries and your voters tend to be very, very ideological, that can work for you, right? But when you're Gavin Newsom, if you say, oh, look, AOC got a million likes on this tweet or, or half a million retweets or whatever it is, I should do that too. Um, your voters aren't necessarily the same people as her voters, right? And, and for example, let, let's take a tech issue, AB5 and Prop 22 uh, as an example. So Sorry, eight, Bradley, just to interject, just to, yeah. uh, my question was really around, should tech companies be participating in conversations on Twitter? An example of this would be something like, you know, AOS, like uh, Amazon, if you remember, started responding pretty aggressively to uh, some of the tweets to uh, that were put out by uh, some of the politicians in the U.S. about their, you know, working culture uh, or the working conditions within their warehouses and things like this, defending with what they believe to be the truth. Yeah, like I, I, I do. Look, I think you have to. You can't let myth truth stand. You have to correct the record. Whether you are substantially engaged in a political fight on Twitter, I think, still depends on the fight that you're in, right? And I still think it's important not to confuse Twitter. For the real world, but but if it's okay, let me let me just finish the the, the point here sure. overall because I think it's an important point for for at least people on the political side to understand, which is um, it, there's the real world of what voters care about, there's the inside game world of what people on Twitter care about, and they're two different things. And so Gavin Newsom governed in a pretty left wing, reliable way that you know kept him in good stead on Twitter and and with the party. But he might lose his job in in two weeks, right? I, my guess is he sort of skates through, but or squeaks by, or whatever it is. Um, and I think it's because, like, like take, or even better than the AB five Pro twenty two, which takes a little while to explain. Take the homelessness crisis and the quality of life crisis in Los Angeles and California, right? You have ten cities in Los Angeles. You have literally human excrement smeared on streets in San Francisco, right? These are untenable situations for everybody. And yet up until now, Newsom always approached these from the perspective of the homeless, the mentally ill, you know, how are we treating them? What's most fair to them? As opposed to the residents of LA or San Francisco who say, I pay a lot of money to live here. And this is horrible, right? Like I shouldn't have to live like this in these conditions. My safety shouldn't be threatened every time I go outside um and newsom only when he saw the polls recently and saw how far you know that he was really in trouble started changing his language and speaking about it from the perspective of the residents right so if you were to live on twitter you know you would basically only see kind of the left-wing perspective on it which would be we have to help and look out for the disadvantages at all costs no matter how bad it is for everyone else um, if you then look at real life and look at this recall Everyone else is saying, fuck that. Um, you have to protect us from this, right? And so the perspective that you see on Twitter and the perspective that you see from the voters are not always the same thing. And the lesson for companies here 
is, yes, there are times where you are in the middle of an inside game fight that is happening in part on Twitter and you have to engage. But if you win Twitter, that doesn't mean you're going to win your fight. And if you lose Twitter, it doesn't mean you're going to lose your fight because Twitter is not the entirety of politics. It's, it's one facet of it. Got it. Um, that's a good transition to talk about uh, an article you wrote a couple of years ago called This Was in the CNBC. And you said Uber has lost its mojo. And I think you were referring to the post like, uh, you know, uh, after the leadership turmoil, Uber had a new management structure, a new CEO and all this stuff. And um, uh, I think you publicly also admitted that you had sold all of your Uber uh, stock at the yep. time. Um, so why did you say what you said? And, um, you know, do you have uh, now as an investor, when you uh, when you're looking at companies, what lessons do you take from the Uber episode and apply them um, yeah. when you invest? So so uh, to, to take these backwards, uh, the good news is my as of early stage venture investor, uh, I'm not paid to, to think about or time the public markets. So typically speaking, once a company has an exit. I'm out, right? And so how the company is then run uh, once it's public doesn't really matter to me all that much. One way or another, we talked about Coinbase before. I've sold my Coinbase shares. I think I've got a, a tiny, the fund has a tiny bit left, but, but we've basically, we're out, right? Um, so that doesn't concern me as much. But but he, here's why I wrote that, that piece in the Financial Times, which is Travis was removed as, as the CEO of Uber. Okay, let's just accept that that had to happen at that point, right? And then when the company decided who to put it instead, rather than asking themselves, who can take this audacious, innovative vision and bring the same tenacity and energy and enthusiasm to it that Travis did without some of his downsides, they said, who's someone we could hire that would cause the least controversy and would calm things down and have, you know, tech pundits stop criticizing us personally on Twitter, right? Or on podcasts and things like that. And so they picked Derek Karashawi, who was the CEO of Expedia at the time, smart guy, by all accounts, a, a nice enough man, um, but but pretty mild-mannered, pretty risk-averse, pretty tame. Um, and, you know, Uber, their IPO was, was not particularly successful or impressive at all. And we were sort of a month into it. And nobody was saying anything. Nobody was questioning like, hey, why is stock performance here? Uh, why aren't we making significant progress on Uber Elevate or the advanced transportation group or freight or things that can really move the needle? Um, we seem to just be playing it safe and we're playing it safe. And yet we're still a unprofitable company, right? And, and you can't operate like this. And, and nobody was saying anything and the board wasn't saying anything. And I felt like someone had to ask the question and someone had to hold the board accountable and say, guys, you picked the CEO based on limiting your own personal exposure and discomfort, not based on maximizing uh, upside and gain for Uber shareholders, which I was one at the time. Um, and, and I thought that was a problem. Um, I spoke out. Uh, obviously, I'm now very unpopular with, with current Uber leadership, um, but I thought it was the right thing to do. And, and you know, I'll, I'll give you an example now where I think Dara's sort of timidness continues to hurt uh, hurt the company. In, in the U.S., at least, we're in this big fight constantly over whether Uber drivers and other people in the sharing economy should be classified as independent contractors or as full-time employees. Um, the companies and the platforms obviously all want to be independent contractors. That reduces their costs. 
labor unions and others will want them to be employees because that then creates a huge organizing opportunity uh, for, for private sector labor. Um, and this is a fight that's playing out both in, in legislatures and courts all over the U.S. right now. Um, Uber spent uh, upwards of $200 million along with some other companies to pass something known as Prop 22, which I think I mentioned earlier in California, which was a ballot referendum that said um, our drivers are independent contractors, not full-time uh, employees. Um, that was sort of the obvious and conventional thing to do. But but I would argue, and actually I'd be cur curious of your view on this because you know the industry really well, for as long as Uber and Lyft both exist, and for as long as they're both locked in a war for drivers and customers, they're going to keep subsidizing the ride in one way or another or trying to um, in order to lure those customers and drivers in their direction. As a result, it's sort of a race to the bottom where it's really hard to be profitable um, because everyone is undercutting everyone else all the time. Uber couldn't buy Lyft because the Federal Trade Commission would never approve that. But let's say Uber said, you know what? We're going to convert to W-2. All of our drivers are now employees. Here's what would happen. Um, when you're an independent contractor, you can drive for any platform you want because you're the boss. You're in charge. Once you're an employee, the employer's in charge, right? And I would just like I wouldn't let my employees work for another venture capital fund at the same time they work for me, um, Uber would say to its drivers, you can only drive for us and no one else. So then the question is, who would drivers pick? I think drivers would just operate purely based on market share. Right? Where can I make the most money? It's all they care about, as, as it's all they should care about. Um, and the answer is in the vast majority of US markets, Uber has a significant dominance over Lyft and market share, which means drivers would pick Uber. As a result, Lyft would lose a huge amount of the drivers in their platform, which means that wait times would go way up and prices would have to go up. Customers would then say, well, if Uber is half the price and the car gets to me twice as fast, I'll just go with Uber. Eventually, all the customers and all of the drivers migrate to Uber, Lyft is out of business entirely, you remove the competition, you remove the race to the bottom, and you did it legally because it wasn't that you were anti-competitive, you actually did something that the, that the left wing and the unions wanted you to do, you turned your drivers into workers. So to me, that's still the kind of counterintuitive thinking and aggressiveness that Uber lost when, when they got rid of Travis and just never really replaced with, with someone like Dara. Yeah, I mean, you said something that uh, stood out to me, which was, okay, can we have all the upsides of a founder? Like, I don't want to labor too much on Travis, it's, uh, but um, can we have the upsides of a founder who's pretty aggressive uh, without the downsides of someone, uh, uh, I mean, some of the things that comes with such a disagreeable, disagreeable personality, right? Um, and I wonder if that's even possible. And, you know, I've found that especially some of the companies I work with on the regulatory side, or there's a certain personality that you need to have a spine in times when um you know you're 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 uh, you're kind of in a, in this weird uh fight uh that's sometimes friendly sometimes not with the government or any other stakeholders for that matter especially in a competitive industry i think this you, you see a lot of this in crypto today um right but do you think silicon valley has lost its appetite for these fringe personalities like uh, who are really like i don't li like I love working with Travis, but he's so hard to work with. 
right? He's so <laughs> disagreeable. He, he has to like Not he's always. gonna debate every. Well, fair enough. Okay, uh, he's got like he's. Um, but I love working with him because you end up learning something in the process, and there is usually something that you thought was not possible to do that you discovered was right. in the process of doing that. So, you can't, um, so I, I, I get the question, and it, it's a, the the answer to me as an investor is you still have to find the Travises of the world. That especially if you're an early stage investor, that's still what you need to find. It's like Shiva, you're you're doing super early stage investing, and I should disclose that I'm an LP, uh, small LP in Shiva's fund. Um, you need those personalities because those are the people who are going to come up with the ideas that break norms, change the way people spend their time or their money, um, create entirely new sectors industry. So you, you can't move away from the Travises because you're afraid that they're too controversial. Um, but and we talked about this earlier about him. When it came to politics, he knew what he didn't know, um, and he was willing to let us generally do our jobs, and we were able to help him legalize Uber in every market in the country, right? So you still need the kind of crazy founder. You just need a founder who's kind of crazy and yet self-aware enough to realize, here's my expertise, here's where it's not, and where I don't have this expertise, I'm going to go get it for other people, and I'm going to let them do their work. Um, when there is a founder who checks all those boxes, to me, that's usually the biggest upside. So I, I, I'm not deterred by investing in people who I think are controversial because I think those are often the people who are going to do the biggest, most innovative things. Um, you just They just need to at least have enough perspective on the world to, to know what they're good at and what they're not. And if we're going to invest, we need to have enough of a role in the company to then be able to at least shape the issues that, that we're experts on. Akshay, do you want to... Talk a little bit about what you've been doing in India. You know, you've helped in the past, I think, MPL, gaming, and then bounce, mobility. How do you think about policies and, you know, regulations in India? I think the the way I understand policy is it's there are three things. It's you have the court of public opinion, you have the court of private opinion, and the court of law. And I think of it almost like a product funnel. Uh, and, um, you know, the issues get debated in the court of public opinion uh, if you lose the battle there, they bleed into the court of private opinion where somebody has a bias against you and then starts to write regulation that might not um, kind of be uh, favorable. And then if you lose in the court of private opinion, uh, then it bleeds into a court of law where there's a final decision made, which if you don't follow, like Bradley said earlier, you might go to prison, right? So you want to win them in the court of public opinion before they bleed into the court of law. Um, uh, that's kind of how um, I, I think about that. Yeah, and, totally agree. Um, and I, 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 I love that, Bradley, like you have uh, in many ways insulated yourself from the politics of the uh, Silicon Valley from your own approach to some of this, because I do think in, on, in some ways Silicon Valley has lost, especially in places like San Francisco, has lost its appetite for dealing with personalities who are disagreeable or different and con a little bit more controversial. I love working with them. I think... That gives me uh, the joy of waking up and doing something new. And I, I really, it's a cost that I'm, I think society should ultimately be willing to pay um, where, uh, you know, th they're just not going to be like the perfect individuals you want them to be. And that's okay because they end up producing so much value for society. Um, yeah. I think that that is moving to the internet uh, or, the, or the cloud or to crypto and to Miami and places like this. Are you from Silicon Valley? because of the monoculture that San Francisco now has. Um, do you think that's true? Or you can feel free to push back on that. Uh, I think it's moving to places like India, Miami, maybe it's crypto, a, which is why I was excited it's about it. a good question. So I, I think I want 
on some level, the answer to that to be yes, because I think everyone who doesn't live in San Francisco or the Valley would prefer not to have to deal with it entirely. Um, and look, our portfolio companies, there are still some of them that, that are in the Valley or San Francisco. Others are in, like you said, cities like Miami, Austin, Boulder, Colorado, New York, obviously, Tel Aviv. So, you know, we're, we're really all over the place on it. Um, and frequently, there are some real downsides to investing in companies out of the valley. The valuations tend to be higher. Um, just that there tends to be sort of a, a level of difficulty of, of dealing with everyone that doesn't necessarily exist in other markets. So um, I, I do think that a lot of the energy and momentum is moving to other places. You, you guys mentioned Mayor Suarez earlier. And uh I'm, I'm a big fan of Francis, and I think that he's done a really good job figuring out how to make Miami uh, attractive to the tech sector. I, I think uh, Mayor Adler in Austin, although he's a lot less visible, um, has, has done the same thing. Um, so, yeah, the energy is moving to other places. Uh, obviously, countries like India are incredibly exciting. That's why I invested in Shiva's fund. That's why you see funds like Sequoia and others have dedicated India funds or dedicated China funds and things like that. Um, with all of that said, I still think you've got a tremendous amount of talent, both on the investing side, the technology side, and kind of the corporate you know, development side, still in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. Um, and I think those VCs are smart enough to spot it. So I, I think that the, the dominance of the Valley over everything else has certainly diminished. Um, but I think saying that they're on their way out, you know, maybe wishful thinking. Fair enough. I have one last question and then I'll yield the floor to Shiva. Uh, and this is somewhat of a, uh, um, you know, a selfish question for uh, the space that I'm operating in. So I actually want to get your two cents on this, which is in crypto, what advice would you have for, um, you know, uh, I think it's it's like one of those Wild West days in crypto. I haven't, uh, it, it reminds me a lot of early ride sharing. Uh, what advice would you have for the industry in which they, uh, in how they're navigating the US yeah. politics? Um, yeah, and the rest of the world. It's it's a great question, and, and if I could put in a little plug here, uh, Anthony Pompliano, who's, who's Pomp, who's one of the, the great figures in crypto, was actually on my podcast yesterday. It's called Firewall. Uh, I believe this episode will come out today, which is September second. So uh, if you, if you find my answer that I'm about to give right now interesting, and you want another forty minutes on it, come check out Firewall. Um, we'll but, put the look, link in the description. I I, I think that. We are at a really pivotal moment for, for crypto right now, where this industry has blossomed. It exists. It's real. It's not going anywhere. Coinbase is something like I did last time I checked the market cap, it was like 70 billion or something like that, right? So, you know, Bitcoin is not at 200,000, like people said, but it's, it's not at 10,000 either. So, it's real. It's not going anywhere. Anyone on the regulatory side who thought, well, if I just ignore this, it will eventually just fade away and I won't have to deal with it. Um, that's not uh, the case, which means we need a regulatory framework. And the question is, how do you create a regulatory framework for a currency that's designed to be sovereignless, right? Um, because we regulate things in a, in a governmental sovereign-like way. And so you're going to have the US, the EU, India, China all have, you know, their own sets of regulation on crypto. Um, and yet none of them, they can only kind of control what's happening within their own borders. And even then only to some extent. Um, my focus tends to be on the US. If I should my last I read a column for a fast company, my last column was about this, uh, was laying out what the US needs to do to properly regulate crypto. So I think number one is kind of deal with it. 
right? I mean, basically, the SEC and Treasury and everything else, other than occasionally prosecuting a really obvious case of fraud or, or occasionally granting a bank charter, basically still pretends that crypto doesn't really exist. Um, you can't do that uh, because it's a real thing. It has there are consumers who are using it that need government protection, and at the same time, there's a lot of economic opportunity and upside to, that you'd want to keep in the United States if if you could. So I think you need someone to be in charge of it. Um, I think that you need to figure out the tax treatment of it. Um, right now, it's treated differently than other asset classes for taxation. I think that's really a problem. I think it should be treated, you know, whatever the capital gains rate in the U.S. is, whether it's 23% or 43%, that's what crypto should be taxed at, right? The idea that there should be a separate tax structure for crypto to me is, is insane. Um, so that's number two. Number three, U.S. states uh, tend to regulate this in very different ways or just not deal with it at all. And so you've got sort of inconsistent federal regulation on top of 50 different patchworks across the U.S. You have states like Wyoming that are incredibly pro-crypto. You have states like New York that create something called a bit license that in some ways is not a bad idea. You need it if you're going to uh, operate a platform that trades crypto. Um, but at the same time, you know, they make it very bureaucratic and, and hard to get. Um, so, I, you know, the U.S. needs to say, I think, there's a big opportunity here. Crypto, while not an American invention, kind of fits the American spirit of kind of innovation and risk taking, I think, in, in many ways. And we could be the, the home of this industry. I mean, Coinbase is the best company in the industry and they're located here. Um, but we've got to embrace it and we've got to come up with a regulatory structure that uh, allows it to flourish, protects consumers, um, but still allows it to flourish. And if I were the government of India or China or if I were the EU, I'd be thinking the same thing. Bradley, look, things are going for you. And uh, Naval Ravikant, he describes three kinds of uh, luck. The third one is uh, the hardest, which is, you know, luck finds you. And I think this is what you've created. You know, at age 29, you ended up becoming a deputy governor of Illinois State. And then you ran campaign for Mike Bloomberg, and then you were the, you know, the right kind of person bringing that political background plus aggressive guy, and then Travis just reaches out to you. Yep. And then you've just flagged a niche, right? Yep. Uh, and the good thing is for you and for Akshay, down the road, as we discussed, internet is going to be everywhere. And, uh, and you guys, go, you know, you got to need people like Bradley Tusk, Akshay. So, you know... But what do you really struggle with? Struggle with a lot. So it's, it's, it's a very good question. One thing I struggle with, and I, I bet a lot of VCs, especially early stage VCs, struggle with this, which is we, we probably, at least as a firm, you know, talk to 10 founders a day or something like that. You know, usually it's, it's, it's the investment team and not, it kind of gets to me when it's a little more advanced. But you know what? Nine out of 10 of them are smart and interesting and they have a good idea and they're pretty well qualified. And you kind of almost always want to be like, yeah, you know, let's try that. Let's disrupt this sector. Let's create this new technology. Let's change the social norm. And for me, that's all so exciting. I think one of the reasons they keep me out of the early meetings is I'm sort of too enthusiastic. Like I find too much stuff exciting and interesting. And the reality is 99% of it are things we should not deploy our capital into and we don't. Um, but, but I sometimes find that either one, um, I kind of want to do too much because there's so much out there that's interesting. Or two, I personally think about the regulatory challenge facing a startup. I come up with a solution to it. I'm really excited about my solution so that I want to be able to go do it. 
But it doesn't matter how good my solution is if the company's not worth investing in, right? And so I have to remind myself like, okay, yeah, that's cool that you sort of have this idea that may or may not work that's a little crazy. Um, but if it works and the company still fails, you shouldn't have invested. So I need to show restraint that way. And the third would be generally, I, I think I have this problem across the board, which is I just like doing a lot of stuff, right? So I've got a SPAC right now in the gaming sector. I am incubating a startup uh, on tele-religion. Um, I'm opening up a bookstore and podcast studio. My foundation is running the campaign nationally to make it possible to vote in elections all over the blockchain. We do all this work around universal school meals out of our foundation. I run a political consulting firm. You know, there's so much going on. And I'm in a position where I can do a lot of stuff because I have credibility. I have financial resources. I have a, a really talented infrastructure, you know, in New York and across the U.S. on my team. And I see a lot of opportunities, both as an adventure investor, but just in general. Um, and it's really kind of choosing wisely um, and, and making kind of the most of the abilities and resources that I have. Um, that's really where I often have to caution myself. Um, so it, it's a good problem to have because it's a problem of having lots of different options and choices. Um, but you know, if you're in my position, it's still a problem if you don't handle it right. So good, man. I just love internet. Uh, Bradley, thanks for responding to that email back in 2018. Yeah, sure. Thanks a lot, uh, for, you know, getting on the podcast and co-hosting this and, uh, and Akshay and I were looking forward to getting you involved in India, Bradley. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. So, you know, definitely, Shiv, obviously keep in touch anyway because I'm an LP now. But Akshay, let me, yeah, just re reach out if you don't mind. Let me know what you're working on, where there's maybe some stuff to do together, and, you know, all that. Yeah, absolutely. Ask uh, you, the next time you talk to Travis, tell him you spoke to the guy who got him into India. Ask him okay. how he landed in India without who got him a visa uh, yeah. into India. I have a call with him. I have actually I'm, I have a call with him later today. So I, I will ask bring him who got him into, who got him a visa into India at two a.m. Got it. I will. Right. Um, I'll, I'll bring it up. So, all right, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thank I you so much. It. All right. Take you care. Cheers. Bye.